Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons. My name is Sam. I work here in the museums and the archives. Um, welcome to our bicentenary series. The Hunterian Museum uh, next door has been open for 200 years. And for this very special program, we have scoured the country, nay the world, for the very best possible speakers we could. Um, and we've gone far, far afield. So last time, you may have joined us when Professor Mahadevan from upstairs talked to us about the barber surgeons. Next time, I hope you'll join us when my predecessor will talk about Sir Everard Hume. But for this talk, we've gone as far afield as the Sir John Soane's Museum, all the way over Lincoln's Infields. And there we find, fortunately for us, one of the foremost architectural um, historians in the country. Um, Stephen will be talking to us today um, about the architectural history of our own building, so it's a really nice um, uh, way for the two institutions across the fields uh, to interact. Stephen was curator of the Victoria and Albert Museum and since 1996 has been curator of drawings at Sir John Soane's. Um, he's lectured throughout Britain, he's published many things in his illustrious career and currently he's overseeing the project whereby um, the Soane Museum is putting every one of its 40,000 um, uh, prints and drawings um, online. Um, and they will all be freely available. They'll all be freely available. I thought I should just check that. Yes, oh, absolutely. Um, which is a massive, massive yeah. undertaking, but a really useful and a very exciting. Um, but without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, um, I leave you to Stephen to tell us about the architectural history of the building here. Many thanks. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, I'm going to talk today about two buildings which have largely disappeared. The first two iterations of the building on this site. Um, the first was lost largely or largely lost through rebuilding and the second damaged, through, damaged very severely through bombing during the Second World War. We're very lucky that substantial groups of drawings for both those houses survive um, and especially for the first uh, building on this site, the drawings survive across the road, across the square, in Sir John Soane's museum, where they sit in a cabinet, uh, the cabinet in which they arrived from George Dance's sale. When an architect died, there was usually a sale and the pro their collection and the profits uh, went to pay off creditors in the building industry and what was left, if there was anything left, went to the widow and children. And one of the things that Soane bought at George Dance's sale was a cabinet containing his drawings. And even in Soane's lifetime, that cabinet became known as the Shrine. Um, Dance and Soane had many links and the name of Soane will keep popping up throughout this talk. Um, we start with an image of the first Royal College of Surgeons on this site. And I put it on the screen here to show you the context as well. Lincoln's in Fields was developed in the 17th century as a residential square. So it's groups of different houses 
generally three bays, window, window, door on the ground floor, um, speculatively built, so they're all different. But it's that division into three bay-wide plots that governs the early history and planning history of the surgeons on this building, on this site. Now, the, the history of the surgeons' links with the Dance family begins with George Dance the Elder. Um, he worked for the company of surgeons. He was architect to the City of London, um, which was a very good... The surveyor to the city was a very good job to have. Uh, it gave him a near monopoly of works in the city... Uh, public works and a percentage of all the public works. It was a very lucrative post and he was succeeded in that post by his son George Dance the Younger. But it was George Dance the Elder who prepared a series of a dozen or so designs for new premises uh, for the surgeons to replace the William Jones building which was next to Newgate. The trouble is that the company of surgeons needed larger premises suitable for their new status. In 1800, they'd become the royal uh, company of surgeons, but also as a home for the Hunterian collection of specimens. In 1799, they were given some 13,682 specimens by Hunter. Um, and... The surgeons needed to move. So they bought 41 Lincolns in fields, using the offices of their solicitor, George Booth Tyndale, a solicitor who lived in the square and is very familiar to us in the Soane Museum as one of Soane's tenants. Um, they held their first council meeting on this site in January 1797. A couple of years later, December 1799, a building committee was set up. And at the, in July 1800, they made a resolution. And it was recorded in the building minutes that the master be decided to confer with Mr. Dance, Mr. Lewis, and Mr. Neal upon the subject of the alterations and erections necessary to be made and also to obtain from each of these gentlemen a general plan for the same. And so begins the process of building the Royal College of Surgeons. George Dance, we've met. James Lewis was an architect as well. He was born in Wales in about 1751, and he was very used to building public buildings. He was surveyor to Christ's Hospital, surveyor to the Bridewell, surveyor to the Bethlehem Hospital. Uh, he'd travelled, he'd been to Italy, studied the work of the ancients there, as indeed had Dance. Um, Mr Neal, and we presume this is Thomas Neal, wasn't an architect, he was a surveyor. Uh, he'd surveyed the old Bailey premises of the surgeons for their sale. And of course he was asked out of politeness for plans um, he produced something very fancy, very neoclassical, presumably way beyond the purse of the surgeons, and he vanishes from the scene early in 1804. So it's down to Dance and Lewis. Dance and Lewis asked, inevitably, for 
a schedule of requirements. And in October 1800, the surgeons came up with two major requirements. They wanted a theatre, an anatomy theatre, which would seat 300 or so people, and they wanted a museum for the Hunterian specimens. It was instantly apparent that number 41 was not big enough. Even though it had been a substantial home, it was owned by the child family at one point, the bankers who'd made their money out of uh, the South Sea bubble and then gone on to purchase Osterley Park House in West London and have Robert Adam um, rebuild it. So they bought next door Mr Jenner's house, number 42. And this was built, there's George Dance, and Mr Jenner's house was purchased in 1803. And that gives you the site, these two houses on the same site. Now, it's not a perfect site. The site, in fact, slopes. There's a difference of several feet between the front of the house here, facing Lincoln's Inn, and the back, facing Portugal Street. And that was to cause huge problems. Also, they had huge problems with the difference in floor levels in the two adjacent houses. And that causes problems right throughout the house until and, and, and every subsequent scheme on these sites until the bomb solves the problem in 1941. So that's the other theme that we have to consider. consider. Now, in January 1804, Dance and Lewis offered their plans and the surgeons considered these plans. They considered them for over two years uh, before in April 1806 having had the plans for two years the surgeons decided they wanted a model so they paid for a plain wooden model which seems to have disappeared. Um, it became obvious by then that the anatomy theatre and the museum alone were going to cost over £15,000. So the college didn't have enough money. And in July 1806, they got a parliamentary grant which enabled at least work to begin. And they started at the back of the site with a demolition of what had been the stables at the back of the site and as was always the way in London at that point, demolition wasn't simply knocking everything down. You dismantled buildings. Second-hand building materials were valuable. And so there was a sale, the, the, the auction of the materials and so on. And this plan shows precisely what they were planning to do initially. This is their first plan. And you can see the party wall continues right through the centre of... This is dying, I'm afraid. Um, through the centre of the building. Um, so you've got still two houses. And on the left-hand side here nearest me, you see the large forecourt walls that divided the forecourts of the individual houses. And very few of those survive, but if you want to see surviving examples, only slightly rebuilt, look at the west side of the square. You'll see a pair of those. Um, at the back of the first house was going to be the museum, which is divided, as you see, into three bays. 
And then at the back of the other house was going to be the anatomy theatre. And you can see it's raked seats behind there. So initially, they're pretty well leaving the houses at the front uh, untouched. There were problems with the building programme. Um, all the time as the plans progressed and became more refined, and you can see here, this I'm afraid is the other way around. I've tried to get all the plans so that facing the same way, so that the front of the building is facing the front of the building, but it doesn't work with this one because the museum is at the top and the museum doesn't make much sense upside down. Um, but they've got a top-lit museum. Well, you've got to have a top-lit museum. You've demolished the house, left the two walls, so you've got a sort of long space between these two tall walls, one the wall of the neighbouring premises, one the party wall, and that dictates the top-lit museum. Um, work began on this um, despite several problems, um, all the usual ones at the time. 1807 was famous for its late frosts, which affected the building industry. Um, it was also very expensive at the time because the Napoleonic Wars had made uh, timber very expensive. Um, there's also, in August 1807, Mr. Dance's illness. Um, it's recorded that Dance went to Lincoln's Inn Fields to inspect the new surgeon's hall, and while standing in the sun, amid the reflections from the bricks, etc., found himself seized with a headache and sickness. He took a coach and went home to bed. It's a, something that happens to architects. Um, when he got home the following day, the apothecary came to visit and provided sound advice the apothecary recommended him not to apply to drawing today. And based on that sound advice, dance recovered very quickly. Um, there were some other interesting problems. Uh, in 1811, it's recorded in the building minutes, that a man was caught stealing lead from the site. He got seven years' transportation for that. And the clerk of works who'd spotted him got a financial reward for his sharp eyesight. Um, work progressed. Uh, and in 1810, a further £10,000 appeared from Parliament, which was very useful. Um, the design kept progressing. And as you can see here, at the first house, the museum now has lovely rounded ends and has stretched in length. And the bit, the fun bit for architects was obviously the anatomy theatre. And this goes through lots of different variants, and I've spared you a lot of them, but you can see it becomes oval to try and get as many people as close as possible to the uh, anatomy table. Um, and one of the things I want to point out is this, uh, this drawing I like because it shows the previous buildings on the site. So the black lines are what was there before. And at the back of the first house, now contained within the museum, 
The stable block has been given an architecturally interesting facade. It's been given this big edicule or niche in the middle of it. And that's going to come into the story later on. Um, Gradually, as the design progresses, and there are huge numbers of drawings over the road, you'll see that lighting the museum now is much more advanced. Dan's tried all sorts of different methods of lighting. Clerestries, he tried oval skylights, rectangular skylights. The favourite was a row of three circular skylights and then a huge circular skylight over the anatomy theatre as well to get the light in. And so gradually he's extending the museum, the amount of room that that took up. That's a section through the two houses, and it shows you the anatomy theatre on the right, but it also shows you the house on the left. And this is what I mean about the difference in floor levels. The yellow lines are the floor levels at each, in each of the two houses, and they really don't match up, and that causes all sorts of problems. Now, Dance and Lewis were paid the usual 5% of total contract cost. And this is where the surgeons showed their mettle. Because as the building progressed, just at a crucial stage, Dance and Lewis made a bid for 5% each, not 5% between them. Um, and the surgeons refused, uh, saving themselves a lot of money. Um, and in fact, out of the total building cost of over £46,000, Dance and Lewis, in December 1814, were paid £2,388.10 to share between them. You can see here the three, that's a longitudinal section running north-south through the museum. You can see the series of skylights, the three main bays, uh, skylights at each end, which are based uh, on Dance's work at Lansdowne House, finishing off the great, uh, what had been intended by Robert Adam to be the great library, and then a brick vaulted uh, undercroft below with um, which takes the weight of this and then the building at the front. There's, and that's an interesting drawing. That shows the dimensions of the museum at the bottom and that grey rectangle is Mr Hunter's original museum over by Leicester Square but drawn to the same scale. So somewhere along the line, somebody has asked them for a direct comparison. How much extra space are we getting for all our money? And this is the answer. So it's, it's almost three times as big in its original version, original design. Um, and most of these drawings that I'm showing are actually drawn by Dance or his assistants. And it's been a subject of much debate about whether this is, in fact, a dance building and not a dance and Lewis building. But, in fact, both, well, two of the leading architects, two of the attached architects, the government architects, Soane and Smirk, both describe it as a collaborative 
exercise. And they would have known. So I think this actually is a building that is designed by both Dance and Lewis. That's what the museum almost looked like. That's not quite as finished. Uh, it, it evolves slightly after that. So you've got this long, house-wide, um, single space divided into bays, each of which in the centre has a circular uh, roof light. And I'm afraid that is a rotten drawing. Um, it's been a very nice drawing, but at some point it's been framed. And it's been framed on a wooden backboard, and the acid out of the wood has burnt the drawing. Um, but that is the best view of the interior that we have, and it gives you the sense of the cases against the wall in each of these bays. That sketch, which belongs to the surgeons, shows you what it was like filled with all its objects, and that gives you a sense of what the museum looked like uh, after completion. A building unsupported and of that size demanded new structural techniques, and dance was good at structures. And you can see the black areas here um, are him using iron in the structure. And um, various iron founders in London submitted uh, designs, but it's basically a timber structure bound together with lots of ironwork to give it this extra strength to enable them to have this big unsupported area in the museum. Dance also considered the position of the Flaxman bust of Hunter and designed this rather nice black marble um, chimney piece with the, 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 the bust of Hunter above it, uh, who may have gone there or who may have found himself at the end of the museum. You can see him there at the bottom um, at one end of the museum, and that's a very clear indication of how the domes and the skylights were to work and the galleries along the side. Whoops. Uh, it's also, of course, a very interesting exercise in building because of these, un these large unsupported spaces. And this drawing shows you the timber structure that Dance erected to get divide the space into those bays and then the timber trusses for the roof on the far side. Um, so you've got one bay here and then a section on the far side um, with the floor level of the museum at this level uh, and the gallery above and then the roof lights above that. And it's a, it, it, it is actually a very good bit of structural engineering that dance has done. Those are very good roof trusses, minimum use of materials, minimum self-load um, to give this big space uh, in the museum. All the details had to be drawn, and there are some exquisite drawings across the square for the plasterwork details, um, some of them full size. And so we have some lovely rosettes and that's just one of the many, many drawings um, just to give you a taste of the sort of detail that Dance and Lewis were going into to get their museum absolutely right. The balcony was, again, an iron structure with a wooden rail. 
All these details are important. And this is where the money goes. And it was made out of the very best materials. Um, two grades of mahogany were imported and used. Spanish mahogany, oh, but for the really fancy bits, Honduran mahogany was imported uh, to give it that really perfect finish. The fun bit, as I say, was obviously the anatomy theatre. And this went through lots of different forms. Um, very, very steeply raked. It went through ovals. There was always a gallery to get the numbers in. Um, there are squares. But even the details here are perfect. Look at the bench end with that perfect bracket straight out of Palladio on the end of it. And although it's made out of wood and plaster, the walls were given a notional stonework. So it looks like stone courses, but it's not. It's actually made out of wooden plaster. And then the big skylight above. And it would have looked a bit like that. That's the entrance hall of number 14 across the road. And so what you're looking at is simply a giant version of exactly that. A few drawings actually show the anatomy table. And there it is uh, with the very steeply raked seating um, going up to the gallery above uh, in the anatomy theatre. And there's a close-up of the table. Um, I was unable in the building accounts to find out what that is made of, but it's presumably some sort of carved stone or marble. Um, but I couldn't actually find a, a, a sum of money for it. But it was going to be an awe-inspiring place. There's no doubt about that. And a lot of research has been done recently on anatomy theatres um, and their performative elements uh, as well and the theatricality of them. And I think that shows you the sort of theatricality you'd have had with the light. The only light source is the big oculus above with the light coming straight down into the room. It's very, very dramatic architecture. And there, even with the body on the table, um, and you can see right in this corner, because you've got an oval lecture theatre, uh, anatomy theatre, and you've got the circular end to the museum next door here, you've got a space. And so Dance and Lewis have started to turn that into their use, and we'll come on to that as we go along. Now, the facade was a problem. Parliament, it's clear, wanted an appropriate facade for its money, and that meant a portico. No alternative. And so Dance and Lewis prepared a Greek portico, um, it's, there's no pediment, it's flat, but the columns are unfluted, so it's not strictly correct, and it's problematic um, stylistically because of that. It's uh, purists would find this aesthetically challenging as well as stylistically muddled. 
Um, and that was to be a problem with the facade of the surgeons right the way through. Um, Soon was slightly miffed about this. Um, this because don't forget, this was building just as Soane was building third, number 13 across the road. And Soane, I think, had rather hoped to be offered the job. Um, but to his annoyance, he wasn't, even though the chairman of the building committee was Charles Long, a friend of Soane's, late Charles Long's later Lord Farnborough. Um, he was a treasury star and a close friend of William Pitt. Um, and later, of course, an artistic advisor to the Prince Regent. And so, in his lectures as Professor of Architecture at the Royal Academy, Soane can't resist a go, inevitably. And in Lecture 4, Soane refers to the six slender ionic columns and the entablature of the portico and condemns them. There's a clumsy imitation of the light Greek anter with an entablature fitted for the massy columns of the early Doric placed over them. He also disliked that strange addition to the cornice, vulgarly called the blocking course. Um, so I think it's generally been assumed that the north facade is a bit of a mess, aesthetically. This was not the only criticism that they had. The, on the front of the facade, Charles Rossi, the sculptor, was employed to produce um, the, sim the, 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 the um, heraldic symbols of the surgeons. And to get it right on the drawings, they simply squared up and sized up a piece of the surgeon's stationery. Uh, which they attached to the drawing. Um, dance struggled with the facade, and there are enormous numbers of little sketches of him trying all sorts of variants. The other interesting thing is they couldn't make their mind up about what lettering to use on the facade. And this goes through a whole series of different um, inscriptions. And you could have had something a little more a little taller, or the Italianate version. Um, there are lots and lots of versions of the surgeons here. Um, other architects were not happy with this either. Charles Robert Cockrell, best known today for his Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, uh, came to visit soon after May 1823. In his diary, he sketches the building, sketches the plan, and writes beside the sketches, College of Surgeons, the Ionic Portico, the gravest I have seen and most severe, ill-applied to the thin paper front of the house with which it has no connection, neither by ornamental architectural style, solidity of character, or material. Very ill. Um, oh, he's only just warming up. Um, that's it as completed. Um, 
vestibule and interior in no kind of harmony or correspondence. You begin with Greek, and as far as example you, leads you, all is well. But the moment there is of your own, it is trash. What is now most essential is to appropriate the Greek style and graft it on our wants and recast it for our necessities. He then goes into the museum. The Hunterian Museum, about 110 foot by 40, well contrived for depositing great number of specimens and well lighted. The contrivance well conceived for its area, particularly the gallery and lower recesses, but the taste is that of a carpenter. Um, and he continues on and on and on the pages of it. Um, so there were problems with the building, uh, certainly at the front. At the back, it's actually rather more successful. And this is a plan of the air estate. Um, the one up there is, was intended to be Camden Circus. Um, and this is the Eyre family's lands developing as you go into North London. Um, Jim Eyre of Wilkinson Eyre Architects. It's the same family. Um, but look down in the bottom left-hand corner. Two sketches of the rear facade of this building. This is dance on the back of a... reusing a bit of paper, designing the back of the building. He wanted stone. Of course he wanted stone on the back of the building. Um, and you have this big edicule between the curved end of the museum on this side and the curved back wall of the anatomy theatre behind the wall on the other side. It went through lots of iterations. The problem was money. So it ended up in brick. No stone. And actually rather successfully. Um, and people actually rather preferred the back of the museum with the stables of the houses either side to the front. And you can see above one of the big circular roof lights for the museum. Now, if you've ever been under the portico as you came in and you saw those strange circular um, pavement lights with little circular lights in them, originally they had wonderful cast grills. And that's Dance's design for the cast grill. And the railings were even better than the ones you've got now. Um, Dance did everything. When Dance died in 1824, Soane was appointed to be the honorary surveyor. And he did a survey plan. But now including on this side the house next door, which the, servants were, which the, the surgeons were about to buy. So this strange, narrow space... And then you've got the warehouse at the back um, that as, as the, the site grew. Because again, almost as soon as the building was open, it became apparent that the new home, although opened in 1813, closed just 31 years later in 1834 for rebuilding. Um, Soon as surveyor didn't actually do much, um, he surveyed the next door house he did a bit of structural work structural surveys but he wasn't offered the chance for the next rebuild and again Soane characteristically was rather miffed about this um, 
he knew nothing of the competition to rebuild until he received a circular from the Royal College of Surgeons in October 1833. Sir, to acquaint you that if you shall desire to compete for the superintendence and execution of the alterations of the building and so on, he was inviting, invited to um, produce plans and join in this competition. Soane rather acidly wrote back, after having held this honourable appointment nearly ten years and having on all occasions when required given my professional advice and assistance, gratuitously, I was not a little surprised to receive a short time since a communication from the college, apparently a circular. The surgeons don't seem to have replied. Um, And to be fair... 1833 was Soane's 80th year. He was three parts blind, and 1833 was the year he wound up the practice. So it's not really a surprise, but I think he'd like to have been asked. So the competition was held for the next rebuild. Charles Barry, Decimus Burton, James Gandy Deering, W.E. Kendall, William Walker were the eventual architects who can participate in the competition. Barry won, possibly because his estimate for the works required, um, and that is sown trying museums out, that's an unbuilt scheme for Cambridge, but that's Barry. Um, Barry won, possibly, because his estimate for the works required to satisfy the requirements of the competition was some 16,439. By the time Barry had rebuilt the surgeons, the final cost was something over 45,000, um, and some explaining must have been, had to have been done. Um, Barry, too, got the fixed 5%. Um, built by a local firm, Pearson Gurrier, of High Hoban. Um, Barry started off producing a series of sketch designs of each of the floors. Barry is a very impressive architect. Um, or I think he's a very impressive architect. He was the son of a prosperous stationer here in London. And Soane had helped him. He'd got him some early work on commissioners' churches up in Manchester. But Barry had travelled widely. He'd gone on a Mediterranean tour, not just looking at Italy and Greece, but he'd done it thoroughly. He went round Cyprus, Rhodes, Malta, and all sorts of other little islands. Barry was a compulsive worker. Um, he deliberately slept very little in order to provide himself with more work time. Uh, he could do any style. He turned his hand from convincing Tudor to Jacobean, Think about Highclere Castle, better known now as Downton Abbey. Um, Scottish Baronial, think about Dunrobin, the great palace for the Sutherlands up on, uh, in, on the northeast coast of Scotland. But his real forte was Italianate. He, of course, was also in 1836 to co win the competition for the building of the 19th century. Uh, he planned the Houses of Parliament. And his brother, Uh, The Reverend Alfred Barry, uh, Bishop, wrote after his death in 1860, 
um, a book, a biography of his brother, proving beyond every doubt, as far as he was concerned, that the real architect of the Houses of Parliament was not Pugin, but was, in fact, Barry. What the surgeons seemed to have wanted was more room for the Hunterian collection um, and its growing organisation. So Barry started expanding into the next house east that the surgeons had bought. Initially, it's a very clever bit of space planning, actually, adding to the museum at the back. So he moves the anatomy theatre across uh, to the back of the next house uh, to allow expansion for the uh, museum and building a huge new library, which goes over two stories and is galleried, as you can see. So it, it is a very, very clever work. Um, the rebuild opened in February 1837, and the surgeons appear so pleased with it that they had him back to do further work in 1855. Um, the building accounts for this, and this shows you the museum, which now becomes has two sets of galleries, these vertiginous cliff-like expanses of cases with galleries below them. The building accounts are not, do contain some odd things that I've not seen in other building accounts of the period. Um, there are not many building accounts that include a sum for cleaning and repairing the sarcophagus. And there are, I've never, ever come across a building account which includes a sum for washing the skeleton in terps. Um, it took half a gallon and then painting it, and it took the painter a day and a half. Um, so it must have been a pretty big skeleton. Um, and there's the longitudinal section of the museum. Uh, and you can see just how much this has grown. But you can see now that Barry has quarter lights around the edge of the museum walls with a flat ceiling above to reflect the light. Um, and then rows of cases going down the middle uh, to house the collection. And that's the effect. Um, very calculated, very successful museum of the date, but again, still within these pairs of walls, so it's still 40-something feet wide. Um, you know, he's trying to make architecture out of a space that has the grace and proportion of a submarine pen. You know, it, it, it's a difficult challenge, and I think Barry brings it off, um, with columns along the lower file of cases. All that, of course, requires ironwork, and Joseph Brahma and Sons, the iron founders, was employed to make iron roof trusses. Now, no cart was big enough to take the weight to bring them here. So they simply bolted on wheels. They tied on wheels at each end of the upturned roof trusses and dragged them by horse. Um, and George Scharf, of course, brilliant observer of Regency London, was here to observe, was fascinated by how you actually got these things round. You have to have um, a swivel at the front so it gets around corners because this is much longer than the average load in Regency London. I'm afraid the edicule at the back, the niche, had to go. As far as Barry was concerned, it was simply wasted space. So the back becomes much plainer um, and much more conventional 
and loses its architectural interest. The front was more problematic because, of course, there you see the demolished new house. They've left the original um, portico and you can see at the top the skylights on the museum. And there's Shaft's view. But as the museum was moving east and the centre of the building was moving east, the portico had to follow because the portico has to appear in the middle of the building. So the six-column portico, they took the west end column down, ran around the front with it and put it back up on the east end. So the portico shuffled down the road one. And that's the, cent- that's the portico be- in the process of being shuffled uh, along. And they've demolished the one on the end and they're about to move it round. But it does look jolly Roman. You do think of the forum when you look at that. Um, and you can see that excavating the foundations here and then the end wall of the museum on the right. Um, the facade, regularised, appeared in various iterations again. Um, Barry had to accommodate the width, the new width, and he was also going up, um, although that effect was to be further changed in 1891 when Stephen Salter was employed to grab the houses either side and bring them into the facade and then add a strip along the top. So the only way the surgeons could expand at that point is going outwards and upwards, and they did. Um, and that's Barry's final version. He fluted the columns, which was sort of correct, but the, it just added to the mishmash. Um, it's not really a very correct Greek uh, portico applied to something that is more Italianate than Greek, but then if you employ Charles Barry, you're going to get something that has an air of Italianate about it. And there's the final account. The minutes show the payments perfectly. You can trace this odd three-quarters of a penny through years of the building. Um, They're fantastic accounts. And that's the result. Um, of course, this, unlike uh, the Lewis uh, dance version, survived into the era of photography. And so you have these wonderful series of few wonderful images showing the museum in use and with the whale which hung from the roof. And I was very pleased to learn yesterday that this whale was actually deacquisitioned by the surgeons and given to the Natural History Museum before May 1941, when the bomb hit the site and destroyed so many of um, Hunter's specimens. So the whale survived, even though the building didn't. Thank you very much. Thank right. you very much indeed for an incredibly rich uh, paper with many details that I'd never come across, and I'm sure uh, many of our colleagues here wouldn't have been familiar with a lot of the images uh, you have in your archives. Um, we have a few moments for questions. I wonder if I might abuse my prerogative by taking the first pitch. 
Um, I've always been faintly curious as to why um, the Dunce Lewis original building was not fit for purpose. Why such a short time span for such an incredibly expensive building? I think it's, I think it's simply one of space. And I think the surgeons as an organisation was growing faster, and I think their collections were growing faster, and their library was certainly growing faster. If you look at the subsequent two rebuilds, the library grows enormously, um, and both in, in size and in the number of galleries, and Barry produces plans for very much bigger libraries that are then slightly scaled back, presumably for cost reasons. He also produces a new museum at the back that is almost, in, in floor area, the size of... It's almost three-quarters of the old museum. So, in a, so he's, he's, it's not quite doubling the museum floor, but it's all because of the extra galleries, it almost is. And I think it's simply that, that they've run out of space already. Um, the acquisitions in the museum, the library, and the growing size of the organisation. I should add that we're more measured in our... (laughs) (laughs) All this took a good... Such an informative and um, entertaining talk. Thank you very much.